Commercial property is attractive to some investors due to higher yields and long leases to tenants who cover the outgoings and even pay for the fit-out. On the surface, this sounds like a no-brainer, especially for seasoned residential investors who may be getting a bit bored with the asset class. But what are the risks associated with buying commercial property? And if we're seriously considering this option, is there an ideal investor profile that we can measure ourselves against? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're joined by Scott O'Neill, a commercial property specialist and the author of Rethink Property Investing. He's also the host of a podcast of the same name, which is created to educate more people about the benefits of commercial property. Scott is known for promoting high-yielding property, residential as well as commercial, and regular listeners will know that we're not fans of chasing yield in the resi space, but we're always open to learning. So thanks for chatting with us today, Scott. In particular, the commercial space is something we haven't covered too frequently on this podcast, so we're really interested in in hearing your insights. No, good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yes, Scott. I mean, I've, I've had quite a few clients and um, we've had a few listener questions request you to come on. So it's good to have you you here. I mean, we've probably done under 1% of our episodes on commercial, to be honest. I think we're clocking about 250 now and probably done two or three episodes on it. So it's a big gap and it's, um, yeah, thanks for coming on today. I guess just the commercial space in particular, I mean, there's obviously lots of elements to it, but I mean, you really focused mainly on that space. What drove you to go down that path versus, you know, a typical sort of property investor just looking at residential? Um, well, the two main things that drove me, well, number one, I was kind of forced to because I did reach a serviceability brick road, basically, uh, brick wall rather, and the banks were not lending me more in residential. So I was like one of those standard investors, you know, buying lots of cheap houses with good yields. And when I was a younger investor, that felt felt like the right thing to do. You know, the cash flow was good. It, it was probably a different cycle. It was a different cycle in the market. Prices were lower, yields were better. It was it made sense back then. But once I acquired a number of properties and then APRA jumps in, all of a sudden the game changes. So that strategy did not work anymore. And I don't think it'll work again, to be honest. So, because so, I had about fifteen odd houses before I went into res- uh, commercial, and um, and it made sense until all the rules changed. And what I started seeing is because at this time there's a lot of rapid capital growth happening in the residential yep. market, so um, the yields were getting smaller and smaller. I was a unit block investor mostly, so I, I bought a couple of houses in Sydney, but then I was chasing high yield unit blocks. You know, I was getting. 10 to 8% gross returns. So that, that was pretty good versus the interest rates at the time. But I was really doing it for the strata tiling opportunities. So it was creating equity through that method. And all of a sudden, all this growth happened and the same unit blocks would sell at 6% gross yield. So it wasn't cash flow positive in the grand scheme of things once maintenance came out, rates, insurance, etc. And then I was just looking online one day and I saw like a mini-mart supermarket um, a five-year lease, five, and it was like a 10% uh, net yield. And I I just thought it was too good to be true. So I I just researched and I called up hundreds of agents. Um, I didn't take the plunge into commercial until about 12 months after I, uh, I saw that first property. And, um, yeah, I, basically the numbers drew me there. So it was a combination of getting forced out by um, tightening sort of yields and, and lending rules and then basically the yield cash flow allowed me to uh, go back and lend again and uh, yeah basically yeah. I've uh, never looked back I've got a question for Chris based on what you just said Scott it's interesting that you went to commercial because you were sort of tapped out in terms of the ability to borrow more for residential but I thought it was the other way around I thought that commercial required um, a much higher equity to enter into the space and in fact that's one of the reasons it's it's ever, you know for a quite a mature investor rather than people just starting out is that how does that work chris well i mean you would have been putting a bit of cash in for these and this is when interest rates were a lot lower scott right yeah and 
then yeah. this would have been the commercial properties would have been servicing themselves. Is that sort of how you were able to borrow more money? Yeah. So there was one big difference. It was the lease stock loans. So because the co commercial properties can effectively, you can silo yeah. the lending and you can do a standalone deal. Uh, even and they didn't look at all the residential debt at yep. the time. And and this is when I, I was redlining back then. As soon as I could buy, I'd buy again. And that's kind of why I bought cheaper properties as well. I was impatient, yeah. you know, typical young <laughs> investor. And and uh, and now I'm actually selling a lot of those cheaper ones now just to go into higher value commercial. So I know something you've said on your podcast previously, Chris, it's about quality, not yep. quantity. I'm definitely of that mantra. You do not buy lots of small, cheap commercial. It's better to go the the higher quality ones because they've got the bigger leases, more well-known tenants. The they're just less mobile. These guys and and they're backed by big companies. And that's that's uh you know it's again it's better for lending as well because banks like seeing stability and bigger businesses in better locations. Absolutely, I mean that's definitely the residential. It's like, well, what's the postcode? You know, is it high density? No. Okay, we'll lend X percent. Commercial. It's like, what's the lease? Yep. What's the location? We won't. We don't want to get into that industry or how long. You know, they casual leases, but we're not lending on it. It's, it's a real. They want to know a lot more, right? Um, who's the who's actually you know le uh, the leaseholder, etc. Um, but I mean, you said there you want to get out of these smaller commercial properties and bigger ones, which. That, that's very much aligned to what I was originally thinking around commercial. You're going to get much better sweet spot, better, better value for money, better risk versus return. But what's that minimum? Like where do you – do you guys not buy cheaper commercial properties unless they're sort of super fun investors that want cash flow? Like do you really say, well, if you, unless you've got a budget of a couple of million commercial, it's not really worth your time. Is that sort of – how does it work? Yeah, it's a good question because it is a moving target. Yeah. When I – when I pivoted the business to go basically all, all commercial many years ago, you know, you could pick warehouses up in capital cities for 300 grand. We actually had a number of them under $200,000. Yeah. So these are things that properties that, you know, an electrician or plumber might have or some kind of like craft brewery or, you know, any yeah. of those kind of like boutique industrial users. So great, great properties, easy to release. Those same properties now, like, you know, half a decade later or six, seven years later, they're probably worth seven, eight hundred grand mm. now. So that's around the entry level at the moment. Mm. So it's a moving target. There is a lot of capital growth happening at the moment because people are chasing these cash flow assets. And remember, it's a much smaller market than res residential. Mm. Um, you'd, I think I'd love to get this figure because I've been looking for it, but what the actual value of the total commercial market is versus the resi. I think resi is around 11 uh, what what is it? It's eleven trillion, just, just shy like. of of ten trillion. It's about it's falling slightly. It's about nine point seven. I think yeah. last count. There you go. So commercials, uh, yeah, it could be it could be twenty percent of that. So yeah. imagine if mm. a few of those residential buyers come over the fence to this. That's a new demand uh, that this this industry hasn't seen. So that extra demand is, I'm seeing it because I'm on the coal face of people, you know, running into the same problems I had, and they. It's a diversity play. It's um, it's a lending play, and and cash flow is obviously becoming more important now that rates are high. Do you think that a lot of your you know younger accumulator clients shouldn't be going down the commercial route? Do you push them more down the resi route to build an asset base to leverage their income? Once they start getting capped out, maybe they start looking commercial down the line, or do you think that you know commercial is the way for them to build wealth initially? Um, it could be both, but look. I'm a spreadsheets type of guy and, and one thing resi residential always offer for those younger guys is a better return on equity if there's growth because you're putting a lower deposit down. Yep. So imagine you're putting 5% down and that, that market's going at 8 to 10% growth per annum for 10 years. Whoever that is, you've done very well if you've been able to cover that mortgage over that period. So it is a capital intensive world, commercial. That is probably the greatest barrier to entry outside of um just intel you know people don't understand the market so you need about 250 grand in this day and age to to buy a decent commercial property you need far less with residential so if you're a young guy or girl looking to start um especially if you're doing it on your own residential is lower risk because it's hard to screw up residential long term as long as it's not in a big floodplain or it's not riddled with termites and you're not overpaying by a huge amount if you buy a dud commercial like a little corner store in a back alley, it's forever yeah. a dud. You can't fix yeah. that. But this is where you've got to be smart about it. And if you're buying the best corner side or the best industrial property in a growth market, um, I, it's higher risk, but the returns are higher due to 
the fact you can kind of uh, it's not as a homogenous property uh, market rather there's it's the angles you can play. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense in terms of um, you know the re- and we'll talk about that on a uh, you know like a question in terms of where can it really go wrong because I think that's really interesting around the quality that's it. But I mean, you have got your entry price at you know say eight hundred to a mil to buy a warehouse for a brewery or an electrician or something like that. But you know, let's say in, in in a lot of our cities, where do you think that the real sweet spot where you really get that bang for buck right you know you do get the better tenants you do get the more scarcer blocks of land you know where you're always going to get demand in you know all markets and um where people are going to compete for leases you know and 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 really push rents up so where do you find that that sweet spot you know changes around the country well as as of the time this property uh podcast recording we're we're probably looking at um around one point two five mil and above this is where you leave a lot of the mums and dads beginner investors behind you can start getting freehold assets you're dealing with you know a three four five hundred square meter building instead of a 120 square meter building so naturally the tenant's going to be bigger they've got more stock they're probably more of a mature business so instead of being in the uh, startup phase they're they've been around for half a decade so their growth has slowed so they're not going to outgrow your properties quick um but the real benefit in that price point is there's just it, and that's still kind of like almost entry level. The the competition starts getting a little bit easier because that sub million dollar range in 2020 22 is it's it's a supply chain train wreck. There is hundreds of buyers for every property because everyone wants a little commercial property, um, and there's just not enough out there. So we're finding yields are getting too tight. So you, you're not getting the great deal unless you're buying it off market or you're just getting yeah. lucky. So once you spend more, you, you're basically out purchasing more yeah. people. Um, the quietest zone in the market is is probably that three to eight mm. mil range. Above eight million, your syndicates and your super funds and all your big boys start jumping into that space, and they're actually they've got money, endless money. They're just parking up. Um, that's why there's still hundred million dollar towers in the yeah. city transacting, yeah. even though you and I probably wouldn't touch an office <laughs> space in the city. They're just playing long-term games, buying and holding yeah. good real yeah. estate. So, yeah. So the best range is is yeah, you're in the millions basically. Yeah. And do you find that it's, you know of those hundreds of people lined up, you know, do you think a lot of them in that sort of fifty-five or even fifty-plus range that you know they're starting to get away from? It's not about the growth and building an asset base. It's now about sort of de-risking my retirement and and getting a real steady income stream. And maybe it's in super and. I don't really want to have it in the markets anymore. I actually want it in an asset that I'm going to know I can got my you know steady income from. Do you find that that's where most of the plays in commercial are is is in that bracket rather than the accumulate a young guy that or girl who's trying to build an asset base? Yeah. So best way I could answer that question is just probably talking through my average clients. So like we work like my oldest client's 85. He bought a shopping center and you know still loves it. Youngest probably early 20s so most of them are in their 40s 50s so they are older um so what you described is is correct chris it's um it's someone who's established a lot of business owners business owners love this because they understand leases Mm. a lot of them are parking profits up and and it's almost creating a side business because it's a profitable business that um is quite passive as well and and just mature investors because like the more the larger your property portfolio becomes the more important is to look after your time and it's less so about you know stretching the money as much as you can so commercial property when you do it right is much less time consuming because you're dealing with one tenant or very long leases there's just less less touch points the the rental managers are they're a different beast in general generalizing but they um they are business people that will will sort of look after a lot more and um yeah and your average tenure of a property they're not like in residential it's probably 18 months you know or less commercial it's probably closer to the 10-year mark so you get bigger vacancies but it's all up front uh but then when you get your right tenant you hopefully got them for half your life if you're lucky 
So I guess the due diligence process, um, looking at commercial properties, obviously going to be completely different to a residential mm. uh, due diligence process because you've got to be looking at the type of tenant and the type of you know business profile. Um, you know those long vacancies would be rather scary, and so obviously you need to be able to fund those if that if that occurs and think about well who's going to replace whoever you've got in there, or if you're buying it vacant too. And I guess it's sort of interesting too because the value of a commercial property is really calculated as a, um, a function of the yield, right? So in terms of the multiple of the yield, you know, what sort of, where does that differ? Is that a sort of a dollar-based thing? You know, the more expensive the property, you would think that the yield is is going to be um, a bigger factor in working out what the property is worth or is it at the lower end of it that you get more competition amongst buyers and that's what's driving prices? So what I guess what would drive the yield and, and then the yield obviously becomes a function of the sale price anyway or of the value of the property. So it's all sort of entwined. But what are some of the issues that in the due diligence process that people need to be aware of that are completely different to residential? Yeah, no, great question. It's it's a complex one to answer because there's so many different layers. To, mm. So firstly, what justifies the yield? So many things. So industry, asset class, length of lease, age of building, um, potential for mm. growth on, on um, even things like the raising build costs we're seeing at the moment. That actually flows through into future capital growth because it, it – decreases the supply of properties because developers can't make their margin. Yeah, so okay. it's the same stuff that happens in residential. As mm. build costs cost up, you're not going to see off-the-plan apartments built at the same price. So that's good for existing mm. stock because it'll slow supply down. That's good for rents. So we're seeing a, a rapid rent growth phase. But Veronica, to answer your question, it's due diligence is the mo most important thing. Like it's taken like, – it, like basically I've got a dedicated team – at my company, rethink to to do all the due diligence. They're basically a bunch of guys that um, have all different backgrounds: some developers, some valuers, um, investors that have worked for managed funds, stuff like that. But they they will look at the rent rates. This is the first due diligence thing you check: make sure the rent's not overstated. Hmm. It's the easiest dodgy game in the book. To you, your uncle's going to make a fake lease, double the rent, and then it look you know ten year lease. It looks great on paper, and some people <laughs> go for these. This is where your, your first-time investors can get really burnt. You could double, overpay the property by a factor of two without yeah, even knowing for it. Sure. So the way to cut through that mess is just check market rates. And then you can start going, all right, well, now I know the fair market rate is, is roughly where the current rent is. Is that tenant viable? So we want to see bank statements from at least for the last three years. I want to see how these guys went in COVID. I want to make sure that you know, they're just not um, a company that's in the, in decline, you know, like what's their competition in that area for, like if it's a gym, are they building another gym next to it? You know, all that kind of stuff. And it's hard. And if you haven't been exposed to the business world and and been around this stuff, you, it's hard to sort of get, get it all done in the right time. So mm. you've got to act quick because you only got 21 days generally to act on all this stuff. So um, the yield is the hardest bit to, to factor because, it's like you guys when you're looking at a residential property you know you need to sort of know where the market's heading you, you can look at comparables and obviously that there's a lag in data the worst thing about commercial is there's almost no data out there mm. where do you get an average yield for medical centers in adelaide good yeah. luck you know it doesn't exist so it's got to be manually sourced through agents um so your colleagues cbres of the world we're lucky because we see hundreds of valuations a year so we kind of make sure we take yeah. account of every comparable so it's mm. almost like an inbuilt data system because without it you're you are flying blind on mm. the yield if you're coming in to buy your one property per year mm. or half decade so that's the due diligence don't overpay for it make sure the rent's good make sure your tenant's not going anywhere we call the tenant up as well i want to make sure that tenant's happy with the building you know mm. tell me about your car parks is there any leaks in the roof the builder missed just chat to them. Mm. Um, they'll tell you yeah. a lot. And if they're not happy, don't buy the property. Yeah. It's an interesting, isn't it, to think that um, it's much more opaque than residential space. Residential space has a lot of information. Most Generally, it doesn't mean people know what to do with that information or how to properly assess it, but it's there. And whereas here you, you don't have it or you've got to know where to go to get it and then there's not one database you plug into and sort of spit out all, the, all those comps. But also... You know, I know with auctions, for instance, the the rules in New South Wales of bidding at auction, they're a lot looser around um, 
commercial space than they are in residential space because there's that assumption that uh, a commercial buyer knows what they're doing. Whereas I would imagine, and given the, the opacity of the, you know the information and the ready access or the in access to data, I would say it's a highly dangerous space for for the uninitiated and certainly those that don't understand small business as well because a lot of these uh, properties are tenanted by small businesses. It would be a minefield. Yeah, and that's 100%. That's where the risk in commercial lies. If you don't know what you're doing, you don't just jump into this because the yield looks good. Um, I think commercial is actually less risky for residential because I know it. I actually know where the rents are going. I'm, I, mm. I can value it to the decimal point, I feel, because it's a lot more numerical based. There's a lot more yes. sentiment in, in residential and um, residential so driven by even just media headlines. Like, you mm. know, there's, I saw last night they're talking about 20% crashes, but they're not factoring how great it's all gone the last two years prior to that. And no doubt 50% of people will probably hold back and go, it's a terrible time to invest now, but right now is probably the best time to invest in the last 12 months because it's now priced a bit better. And yeah. There's a bit of that kind of unpredictability that in residential, which which I find harder to understand. Um, commercials, it's square meter rates. It's, it's like spreadsheets, numbers. It's so boring but predictable in a way, which that's why I kind of feel comfortable with it. And um, mm. And you just got to make the, the the hardest bit is working out which trends business are, are going. Yeah. On. So like office spaces, more people working from home. Obviously, mm. there's going to be less need for that. Industrials picking up the slack. Essential retail's going as strong as ever. Um, you got to look into upcoming DAs. If you buy a shopping yeah. center, make, make sure there's not a big new one going in. <laughs> if it does, make sure you get the current one at yeah. the right price because rents may drop. So you got to factor in all those things. What do you think about like markets? So like you know. Certainly, residentials are very he- heavily driven by investors, for example. You might think high density, right? And when investors aren't buying, they get smashed. But, you know, obviously commercial, it's all investors, right? You know, it's not people buying houses to live in, right? And so there's not this underlying need just to, I'm not selling because I need somewhere to live. I mean, how do you think that, you know, we've had a bit of a, a, a tailwind, I guess, you know, drops in interest rates have forced more people to get away from cash into high yielding yep. investments. Um you know, you're leaving your money in the bank, you're getting nothing, you can't do that. I've got to buy something. Anything's better than zero in the bank. I might as well just buy a commercial property. So, you know, how yeah. do you think that that flipping into higher interest rates, do you think that's going to be a real, diff- like really split the commercial market? You know, the, the quality assets can survive on lower yields um, because they're very scarce and they can keep increasing their rents. And then the other yep. sort of commercial properties that were highly priced because there was just desperation about searching for yield, they're going to really struggle because of um, they don't really stack up onto higher interest rates. Is that sort of your take? Um, so, interesting comment. So, in, about there's a very strong owner occupier market in commercial, but some sectors have more owner occupiers. So, think about industrial sheds. Mm. That our we mm. lose more Fair, bids against owner occupiers. Yep. Um, mm. Now the rates have gone up. We're actually seeing more people are happy to sign that five year lease because two years ago. All your good tenants wanted to buy their own shed. It was very frustrating because it's like we can't, we can't like we're competing against this <laughs> other market, and yet they don't want to rent. So it actually increased vacancies and the the price for a vacant shed and a you yeah, know, a, gotcha. one with a good tenant. Yeah. It was the same yeah. money really. So um, right now the power's gone a little bit back to the investor because there's more tenants looking because the owner occupiers are more hesitant to take a bank yeah. loan out. So mm-hmm. the the investors still want to return on their money. So. Your, your comment's very correct for things like office or small retail. Um, like I, We like buying freehold shopping centres where you might have a supermarket and a bunch of small tenants like hairdressers, physio, um, pharmacy, yeah. stuff like that. They're mostly renters. So there's a, they're normally funds own these like, or a high yeah. net worth individual and then they're tenants forever. So that that's probably more true, that comment in that sector and office space because people – tend not to buy their office space as much as they would. So there's a, yeah, there's more just institutional money in that side. Like all the big towers in the city yeah. are owned by, you know, Stocklands or Aqualand or those big companies that we probably all own a piece of in our super. <laughs> it's interesting uh, you talk about the owner-occupiers because I was thinking about that yeah. in the odd times we bought commercial in our business. We only buy for owner-occupiers. I don't, mm. we, we don't, we're not geared up to, to do all the analysis for commercial. It's not our, we don't know it familiar we're not familiar enough with it but 
I would still hazard they're probably not quite as emotional um, as a you know somebody's going to occupy it to live in a property. Yeah. But there's also this self-managed super fund space where you know I've heard and I've seen or I've met lots of people who bought small office space in their super fund, um, and so that's another I guess aspect of the, the um, owner occupier. Although technically they're not because technically it's a super fund that owns it, not them. Yes. But we all know what we think about that. Since we've had lockdown, since there's been this work from home movement, a bit of a U-turn happening, hybrid models, all the rest of it, where are you seeing the trends um, in terms of the demand for different types of commercial spaces? Because, you know, retail's had quite a significant change and certainly the office space has had a significant change. I guess your plumber who's got the industrial lot or industrial unit, they're not, you know, that's not going to be a great change. But certainly those two other um, sectors have had um, quite, I guess the, the impact that they've had from COVID has been um, quite different. And also like pubs and, and spaces like that. I was reading today, uh, Inner West Council in Sydney has, is putting on the Heritage Listing Register 17 pubs because they don't want them being uh, repurposed into other types of spaces. So it's sort of interesting that they need to do that to stop because these properties, obviously, if they were on the open market, they didn't have a heritage listing, were starting to be worth more with a different use. So what sort of trends are you seeing at the moment? So, yeah, the, the big one is the office market. So, you know, I was in the CBD an hour ago and um, it's just not the same. It's still like, how long has it been? Um, there's, less, there's less people in the city at the moment. That uh, resulted in about a doubling of the vacancy rate. So, you know... It, things went from say six percent to nearly 12 during covid so it wasn't great if you are earned office you're basically going to have larger vacancies um you know and that's a space we never invested in because it's like a high density one bedroom unit in a over over it's always going to have a different level of risk there's a lot of similarities between commercial and residential like it's you know if you're owning the freehold in a good you know core middle ring suburb and there's you know and it's a decent building it's pretty hard to go wrong it's going to have that natural capital growth because you know everything's attached to inflation to a degree and it's leveraged inflation so those um those suburban neighborhood shopping centers improved after covid medical properties improved because they were viewed as recession proof (laughs) um there was things like boarding houses and that declined because they've got vacancies and less international students and uh, all of the above, that less uh, migrant spring. Um, they're going to make a comeback, no doubt, because there's several hundred thousand people planning to come into the country in the next few years. That's going to be um, horrible for the leasing market or if you are renting. So rents are going to skyrocket. They need to work out uh, how to fix this supply problem on a residential front. But commercial is going to benefit from that because a lot of these people are going to work in the city. A lot of them are going to work in factories. So... Um, but look, the golden child of COVID was industrial. That just went from being a second tier type viewed property to to being the one everyone wanted. Like <laughs> for the last hundred years, office and retail were premium. Industrial mm. was viewed as the just a dirty shed in the outskirts of a city that you could replicate many times over. That's just so far from what it's been viewed as yeah. now. Mm. So I mean, if if for the commercials, a lot of it's based on yields. Do you find that unless you know what you're doing? Your could very easily pick the commercial property with tenants that can't afford rent increases, right? And um, so to assume that you're going to get inflation or above inflation rent increases, um, the 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 leaseholder can't afford to pay higher rents, maybe because their profits are getting squeezed, etc. Um, maybe there's yep. um, you know oversupply of takeaway shops, for example, or whatever it might be. So is that one of the big risks you see a lot of commercial? you know, investors get wrong. They, they just assume that, you know, the, that when they release it in five years' time, they're going to be able to increase their rents 20% and they end up just basically getting a sideways. So, yeah, the yield still looks good on their current, their, their initial purchase price. So, they're still getting 5% yep. yields. But unfortunately, that rent just stayed the same for 15 years. Um, do you see that those sort of issues <laughs> pop up? 
I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. And if you'd like a 30% discount plus free postage for my book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property, Even Though You're Scared Shitless, and yes, I'm a potty mouth, use the code ELEPHANT at the checkout, veronicamorgan.com.au. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Look, that'll be the good thing to get. That's what I want to get my head around if it's even possible. What's going to happen in the next five years? Because rents are going to be increasing rapidly. What impact that has on businesses will be very interesting to understand because right now they can pay it and they are. And if they don't, there's another five minutes ready to take that property. Um, Will that change in time? It it will at some point because everything has a limit. But by then, that's probably going to be what I would think the end of this inflation curve. It'll start coming down. People will stop spending as much. Maybe that'll coincide with the decline of uh, interest rates. I don't Mm. know yet. We'll we'll find out altogether. But um, yeah, look, where I see people getting it wrong with commercial is those classic auctions where they've got a service station and it's selling at a 4% yield and less than perfect area. These guys... Like, I wish I had them as clients because we could double their deal. You know, it's like they're buying absolute junk at terrible gotcha. yields and they're paying like millions of dollars. This is not a 500 grand purchase. They're paying five, yeah. six, seven mil for this stuff. And I've spoken to many agents over the years like, who are these people that are buying these properties at these ridiculous prices? And they're just cashed yeah. up retirees or people that literally don't even have a bank loan and they don't care. They just want to park it up enjoy their 15 year lease if it goes up it goes up it's just it's a not it's 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 a counter move to just sticking it into yeah. the bank that's all it is and they've got enough money to, to play with those numbers so it's a different space and that's who and they what, are what you, but they make mistakes yeah i mean i guess it's you know there's obviously you some areas you've got a real undersupply of industrial or you know resident uh, retail in certain pockets how do you think about the investor though that's on a higher tax rate right like so you know, when you're earning more than 180 and you maybe your partner's earning more than 180 and so whatever you make in yield, you lose 50% of it. Um, how do you think, how does that play into your sort of strategy and whether they should be looking at things that aren't focused on yield or focused on say capital growth where, you know, they're not losing 50% of it today. They're paying capital gains tax when they sell an asset in 20, 30 years time. And, um, yep. you know, does, does, does that matter to your strategy? Do you think it really suits people who are on lower tax rates? Um, and, you know, super fun investors rather than sort of your high income hitters? Yeah, look, it's a good question because um, it's something that comes up a lot because most people who buy these types of value commercial properties have yeah. good income. So the one good thing about commercial is you're getting the full depreciation benefits. And I'll, I'll just use some numbers on a this high net worth individual. He was purchasing a, a $9.2 million property, three drive throughs and this thing was new. The cash flow from this was um, just under 600 grand net. That was after outgoings. But the depreciation benefits on it was 390 grand. So 390, you know, you can work out your tax. You're only going to be paying it on just under 100K on that tax. So it's actually quite tax efficient. He's not going to be paying much. He was probably setting it up with separate trusts and, you know, family unit trusts. Like, so he'll, there's not going to be much tax to pay on it, but it's, it's a significant high cash flow investment. So, they're, they're making money on the on the you know pre-tax return as well. So that's that's so what, a good so thing. to get that depreciation with the commercial. I just um, that's obviously reasonably renovated, has it? Or or is that well, that this one was like a new okay. asset? So that's why that depreciation was so high, and it was one of the reasons it suited this client because the post-tax return was actually a, a fantastic yield. So compared to buying something that was fifty years old, that four hundred grand wouldn't have been there. So a big bigger offset so do you of often see that percentage of depreciation i mean that that would that, would that like a bit of an outlier like is, is it usually not that big of a deduction unless you're buying something that's recently yeah. renovated or recently built which you're probably paying for a premium for anyway um 
And there's probably yep. more demand for that stuff because it's probably seen as lower risk and, you know, easier to rent, I guess. Um, yeah, that, that's one of the better ones. But most of them aren't too far from that because think about a commercial building, like especially if you buy a 10-year-old a industrial yep. property. So much of the value is trapped in the bricks and mortar or the slab. It's a high, high wall. So there's a lot of value that you're depreciating against in the building. So, and then there might be like internal fit outs and all sorts of other stuff. So there's, there's, they're very expensive buildings and that's the difference. So a house, you're paying a lot for the land, you know, that's good land is, is where the appreciation will come commercial. There's more value in the building itself. And that's why those big towers in the city are just, you know, that'd be enormous returns on those because after tax that there's, there's a lot to play with basically. Well, I guess ultimately, even in residential, what people are paying rent for is what's on the land, not the land. So you can see that with a, you know, with a, a small unrenovated house on a huge big block of land right next to a mansion. And, you know, the rent will be different based on what they're actually renting, which is not the land itself. So I guess it's, it's the same in, in commercial. But obviously, you need to have a pretty good uh, accountant on board to be able to work through all the, the levers because with residential, it's sort of pretty limited in terms of how you can structure uh i guess your investments and how you how you work them where it sounds like in commercial is a lot more flexibility yeah with yeah. How, how you oh, and also i noticed that when you calculate yield or return on investment you're actually calculated in terms of cash flow um which is great and i actually think that people probably should look at that too when they're they're looking at residential property it's it's useful useful to do that and then assess it against whatever capital growth you're getting so that um so that there's a, an honest way i guess of measuring the caliber of your asset but certainly with commercial you that's more important isn't it i mean how do you work out i mean we, we've talked about how you work out the value of a property um and it's based on the yield. But like, for instance, I read one of your articles on your website that said that in a two-year period, your, your, um, the value of your portfolio went from, what, $22 million to $47 million in two years, right? So how much of that was capital growth versus uh, acquisition? And how, much of, how did you calculate that capital growth? What's, where did this $25 million miraculously come from? So it came from a, a few things. So... I was lucky enough to buy, you know, a place in an affluent eastern suburbs uh, property in Sydney. So that that literally doubled during COVID. But where I sort of got the most gains was I sold about five million of assets down, and these were my lowest yielding properties that I just thought have done enough. You know, and it was going to be there was less upside in it. So I then sold all that, paid the tax on it, um, used growth from refinancing, and plus some other savings, and then went into larger deals. So what I basically have been doing and I'm still doing is I'm transitioning out of those sub-million dollar residential houses um, because they just take too much time and, you know, it doesn't really worth getting out of bed for just, you know, a couple of hundred bucks a month when other properties are giving you a hundred thousand. Yeah. And that's so I'm going into those larger assets and that's um, that'll be the long-term thing. And, and so less is is more in this case it's just less properties but higher value ones and um yeah it's they're a little bit safer too when you go into those higher value ones too i think so it was really a restructuring of of your investment portfolio um rather than happen to be sitting in the right place you must have got some big growth though yeah unless you to take a portfolio for 25 to 47 million you must have in that restructuring yes your house went up but you must have almost like manufactured growth or got you know, really bought in 2018 was a pretty dire market. So if you if you were able to transition yeah. out in 2018 and then got all the uplift with a massive drop in interest rates, which got a huge increase yep. in people chasing yield, right, and chasing growth and FOMO. Um, but, I mean, 2020 wasn't before it really kicked off. So, I mean, that number's obviously changed as well since then. Um, do you think yeah, that yeah. – do you think manufacturing growth, like with Resi, I mean, you – you can try to manufacture growth. I think it's a bit of a mugs game a little bit, unless even the townhouses and the small, that yep. I very rarely see people walk away with a huge game for all that. Um, unless they were like privy to something that, you know, uh, I don't know, they got a DA through that they probably shouldn't have or, you know, something like that. Uh, whereas if it's an area where they're all building townhouses, they one works, the next one doesn't work and they wipe out their gain. So, yeah. But commercial, do you think that the smarts is – also manufacturing that growth. How could I repurpose this land holding to 
add more yield, you know, add more tenants, go higher, yep. you know, is that the real where you get the big capital uplift? Because that's where you increase your rental base, which can really drive. Yep. And then also, you know, opportunities where people are renting it out for too low, you know, like this just, they got a bit lazy with reviewing their exactly. rents. Yeah. So like one of the big wins I had, it was a shopping center, regional Queensland, um, renegotiated three leases there were six of them so it went from four mil to 5.2 mil so mm. that's just from length yeah. leases and there was a couple of years of rental increases in in that as well so that would yeah. have bumped it up but you know that's only you know 20 30 uplift so that's if you can increase your rents by 10 or 20 percent that's your equity so mm. i'm doing that on another shopping center deal i'm doing where we can add uh, 150 odd thousand of rent so if you capitalize that that 150 yep. or divided by 0.6 you know a couple of, you know two and a half odd million there as well so increasing rents equals capital value essentially so if you can find deals that you can increase the yield it's actually it's going to be backed by a value just just through the market cap capitalization rate which is how they value the rent in that market so the lower the cap rate that would be like a darling harvest cvd type property it might be three yep. percent there so like that means your rent's worth more to 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 a valuer so yeah the higher the yield the less uh important that rent is i guess so and the higher the risk essentially so um yeah you manufacture equity those ways and um and that's why i think the upcoming period is going to be quite good for commercial investors and resi guys too because rents are growing and that's going to be important for the long-term viability of these investments so rent growth is it's almost a forward indicator of future capital growth, even for residential, because now that all the rents in, say, Brisbane or whatever have jumped 100 bucks, it's now looking like the yields are more justified mm. now. So there's, there's, it's creating fat in the deal down the track, I think. Commercial's just a little bit more sensitive to that. And on the finance, I know you guys do your own finance probably for a lot of your deals, but how are you finding... Because, you know, one of the things, we, we don't, we're not commercial specialists, right? We do 98% of our loans in resi and, um, you know... People buying their first house, upgrading, renos, you know, one or two really quality investment properties. Our average is quite high. It's probably like 1.5 a client, so it's not what traditional mm -hmm. resi is. Um, yep. But, you know, we, we're not, you know, here to say we know the commercial market. But, you know, when clients come to us and they have bought commercial or they've come to us and said, oh, can you help me with this? You know, we find that the LVR thing catches people out, right? Because banks come in and out of what they're willing to lend on certain. So when you're assessing the deal, is that one mistake you see a lot of people make is they just don't understand how the finance and how banks will look at that commercial property and what LVRs they're going to require and what's their lease conditions, et cetera. And so do you find that within 21 days, that's actually quite hard, like the commercial space to get good answers mm. unless you know the commercial space, um, you, you yep. can get wrong there. So is that one of the key things that people get wrong with commercial? They don't know how to understand the finance element. So then because yep. – what someone can borrow on it really ultimately determines the price, you know, plus what cash they've got. Because if people can, all, everyone can borrow ninety yep. percent on it, then obviously it's going to be worth a lot more than if everyone can only borrow twenty percent on it, right? So, yeah, how do you exactly. so how do you sort of, you know, look at properties and say, well, we're not going to buy that one because we know that no one wants to go into childcare's right now, and they're only going to lend forty percent on it or something like that. Yeah, and that's probably one of the main reasons that even in. 10 years ago, I wouldn't have touched a service station because it's like 50, 55% yep. funding. So less return on equity because you've got to put more cash to get the same price. So um, sub-million, you can do 80% yep. loans currently, which um, which is probably fueling some of that extra demand yeah, sure. at the moment. Mm. So you're 100% you're right. One of the biggest things when people come to me and look at the finance, like because we put all the numbers out, like stamp duty, the cost of evaluation, the building a pest like and they always it's always more money than they initially think yeah. so you know 30 like if you've got 300 grand you can't buy uh, a million dollar property because you've got 50 grand in stamp duty you've got 20 odd grand of other costs so fee on a mortgage is you know 40 basis points or whatever yeah exactly <laughs> so that that eats away at your expectation so you're probably at 800 all of a sudden or less so that's um that's a big difference because residential investors, they, they don't look at the numbers as close. Like your comment about the gross returns, Veronica, it's so true. And I think the sooner the residential industry starts quoting net returns, the more honest it'll be because you can't say 
a unit in a high rise is a six percent gross return. Yeah. That's a ridiculous yeah. comment to it. It's going to fool someone. It's the, and it's designed to fool someone because they've ignored three grand of strata. So quote numbers yeah. that are correct, we, and that's net. It's funny actually when we do our gross yields, we do a sort of a gross slight net yield because we always take into account strata levies because that's the one big variable. I mean, yeah. houses will have council rates and water rates and and apartments that in that, and that's that is very different from building to building. But I think too um, on the commercial space, I mean, you've got a, a lot of different options that you might be a little bit more agnostic to location. Whereas in in residential, there's there's you know eighty the eighty twenty rule. It's the location is pretty much well regarded as being eighty does eighty percent of the heavy lifting. So you buy from what I understand across the country, right? You've got city markets, you've got regional markets. Uh, how do you sort of work out what's a good location for a commercial property? And I imagine it's not as simple as it would be for residential. No, because it's almost to the street level or even the property number. So especially retail, you, you know, you know, in every main street in your local town, there's going to be that great corner location. Yep. And then 20 meters away, it's going to be just mm. out of sight. So, or there's no car spot. So you really got to understand like exactly what's happening in that specific market. So, and even just looking at what other tenants are in place, um, you know, that that's a big part of it. If you go regional, there's nothing wrong with regional as long as, as it's not a declining town or <laughs> one one industry town. That all, mm. you know, like I saw my father lose half his life savings in, in Moorumba. You know, remember that? Yep, mining real, town. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> so I've always hated mining towns as a result. But if you're buying in a town that has every other fundamental or even if it's a mining town but it's at that new cheap rate and it's never going to go uh yeah. go lower like there's it's ju- it's just understanding the the true fundamentals of the area and and as i said a good building in a good location with lots of foot traffic or highway traffic does change it and that that's where it's very different from residential like highway traffic is good residential yes. it's bad <laughs> very true so scott uh have you got a property dumbo for us i'm sure the um the commercial space would be there'd be plenty of them. I mean, over the years where you yep. you see people rocking up at auctions, throwing big numbers down, and you're shaking your head, and lots of other issues with due diligence. There'd be thousands of things you would see on a on a weekly basis. Well, something that's quite topical. It's at the upper end, but you know, us in the office had a bit of a laugh at. There was it was circulating on the news that someone bought a Bunnings, eighty million dollars with cash, at a three point nine percent net yield. And we've all just been debating, like, why would you want a 3.9% yield? Why has this guy got 80 mil cash? Why, like, it's just all these questions because um, it's it was just such an overpriced purchase that us investors who want returns on money, that we can't get our head around. But some people just lose their minds and get too romantic over a brand of a business or a tenant. Mm. That's that's where they'll, uh, you know, say, I need a childcare. I'm going to buy a childcare because I understand it. I've recently had to go through the childcare system it must be good but if that childcare business is not viable and you know there are there they're out there those ones then you've just got an overpriced house so you've got to be really careful with those but um it's the, it's just the auction houses they just somehow get it's like a two-speed market there's a there's a price at an auction with you know big well-known real estate companies that you know just line people up for the slaughter there and they just get almost 20 percent over market rate all the time and um and that's that's kind of the the thing we find funny as buyers agents because it doesn't happen as much in residential like you'll see those outliers where the two people fall in love with the property and push it way above the reserve so there's that um i guess yeah like we've seen people buy in towns that have been bypassed you know by the red rooster on the highway and then that highway doesn't go through there like that would mm. be a horrible situation to be in so that's you know make sure they're not diverting the road in any way and you know a lease is is only as good as the lease like if the business doesn't work they'll fail on their lease so it's got to be a good business behind it but um yeah the average case study like you know our average purchase price is probably just under two mil people are either going like a multi-tenant retail or yeah industrial property you get a six to seven percent return so if it's um a million dollar property you get 70 grand clear your mortgage on that um if you're 70 percent loading it you know it's what 40 odd grand a year so you're clearing thirty thousand after cost so that's 600 a week in your pocket is what people are still attracted to at this stage and then you get your depreciation 
and your capital growth because inflation, if that rent goes up 6% this year, that $1 million property is now worth 1.06 yeah. mil next year. So you make a pretty good money for not doing too many risks, really, I think. Around the borrowing capacity of commercial lending, it's, you know, if you, you're noticing that you're going to have to start to, to continually to buy, you're going to need a bigger and bigger deposit, right? Um, you know, because the assessment rate. Or are you finding that once you're sort of at a certain level that you can still keep on just borrowing money? Like, what are you sort of finding for your bigger clients that, you know, some of these smaller commercial properties are capping out pretty quick and then the bigger end are able to just keep on borrowing as long as they're smart in what they're buying? Yeah, so it's deposit limited. So you can lend forever, basically, if you're getting the right yield. So um, I've got, like, one of my largest clients, he's got over 300 commercial properties. Um, but he's got huge amounts of equity and credit. Yep. It's taken him a lifetime to do that. But mm. there's no bank that'll say no to him if that he presents a 6 or 7% yield property and it's got a five-year whale on it, weighted average lease expiry, and um, and it's a good core asset like so the banks will keep lending and you're dealing with a different department of the bank too private yeah. wealth and they will push limits for you but you're generally working off 65 percent loans yeah. max at that yeah. range so it's lower debt again yeah so that you know person buying at two mil for example needs 700 grand of cash or equity in other assets Correct. and you know to do that then you're going to need a big asset base so this is i guess why you find it it is heavily weighted to sort of the more sophisticated bigger balances because they can keep on you can't just keep on borrowing for commercial unless you've got cash and you know so it's like yeah sort of a catch-22 you hmm. want to do it but then you haven't got the cash then you've got to go and build the cash some other ways and, and do you think that's why you know you, you your average is two mil right so that's you're talking you know a 30 percent deposit you know you're talking 700 grand um it's going to really yep. shift towards that sort of 50 plus range is that sort of is that is that why you, did, you opened yeah. the residential arm is that you, those younger investors that haven't got those big cash that they look at these sort of more resi area? Um, we always had the resi, um, we, but yes, you're right. It is more deposit limited because a lot of them want the commercial and we just say, look, it's not right for you. The deposit is too great. You're going to not get the leverage you need. Yeah. Um, so this is the great thing about residential in this country. It is... Um, it's 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 allowing people to get into that next level of wealth. Like if you do it right and hold it for a long period of time, you don't have to use much of your own money. You ninety percent of it's the bank, so that's the key. Um, once you've got the deposits, like I see these people that you know they say they buy fifty plus houses. To me, that's like <laughs> a child collecting toys. Like that is a ridiculous thing to do because a smart investor would have stopped by then and started buying higher income more sophisticated assets with better returns because they've got the equity. Mm. You can't just jump into it if you don't have the money. But once you do, you know, if you've if you won lotto and won twenty million bucks, like buy a couple of shopping centers, yeah. you know, and you'll never work again. You don't go buy twenty houses in uh, you know, a bad part of a suburb. What do you think about tax free growth on your well, home? Get- Sorry, <laughs> tax free growth in your home versus, you know, you're paying capital gains tax on all your commercial property and you know I guess, and then also, I mean, you've got super and, you know, people leveraging their super into commercial, which, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, that can work really well, right? Uh, especially when you're selling that into retirement and if, especially if it's your premises, et cetera. So how do you think the capital yep. gains tax exemptions and people being smart around that matters with commercial? Well, it's probably like my experience is it's almost the last asset you sell. Like, cause people who own a commercial property, they've probably got a bunch of shares. They've probably got a bunch of houses their home to live in. So the last thing they will sell is probably their home to live in unless they're downsizing or whatnot. Yep. That's obviously amazing because there's no tax. So that's, <laughs> you can't, can't complain with that. But um, yeah, you generally will hold on to this asset because it's your highest income yeah. and it's the lowest touch point. And if it's gone well for 10 years, it's probably almost got no debt on it by then as well, you know, or very little. So your LVR might be 20% at that time or, yeah. or whatever. Um, so my experience is people often don't sell. Um, and the reason they do sell, like, because I'm negotiating on properties every every hour of the day, the main reason people sell are they're either dying, you know, in their late 80s or whatnot. Um, there's divorces. And the other thing is um, funds selling because they've got this, like, seven-year sale mandate. So, yeah. And the, the reason they sell yeah. is because they make money. Syndicates, they make money by buying again and selling again. So this is one of the reasons I like buying direct because you don't get slugged with all those extra fees that... Uh, a syndicate would. So you, you're going to have 
a better return on your money by investing direct easily just because of the fees. I find it interesting that your observation is that people will overpay to such a great degree in the commercial space by going to auction. Uh, and then I wonder, well, why wouldn't somebody insist on selling at auction if that's really what happens? So it's quite, it sounds a little bit more like the Wild West. And so you do need a bit of a guide running through that. But also, I think what sounds clear to me is that it's, it, and we've talked about it a couple of times during this conversation is that it's certainly for a more mature investor and that's sort of age mature because you need to have actually uh, accumulated some wealth and some equity using other investment pathways. I guess also it's interesting around the yield and the yield is so important for um, capital growth and so they're intrinsically uh, combined whereas it's the opposite pull really with residential property. As capital growth, you know, you get capital growth which is really what you want, it's a holy grail, but then your yield goes down. And, um, And so people buying, you know, residential property for yield are typically foregoing capital growth which is precisely what you need to get into this uh, co- this commercial space at a future point of time anyway so the whole yield versus growth um argument or, or game i guess it becomes a little more complex a little bit more interesting if you if you're looking to aspire to get into uh to a capital into a commercial um investment down the track yeah and like Two parts to your question, like the why don't people sell at those auctions? Um, you've got to have a specific type of commercial property, so branded tenants, your super cheap autos, your McDonald's, right. KFCs. So you wouldn't um, – I guess that's where you attract the non-sophisticated investor because they just see McDonald's and go, I'll pay anything for that because it's safe. It's safe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we're going to be valuing it on like the empty shell of the building, mm. the relatability of it. The, you know, We don't get too fixated by the tenant. Um mm. But yeah, you're right. Like uh, my probably my most common type of clients equity source is um, well, two. It's either they've got a good business yeah. and they've got a big chunk of cash, or they've got a decent portfolio. You know, five six million, and they've had that for a, a decade, and all of a sudden they've got a couple of mil equity. So then they can go buy that five million dollar property in one go, just using all their yeah. equity. So they get it out one big hit, and then use that for the deposit. That's very well, common. The cash flow for them won't be nearly as good as somebody who does come up with the the, the deposit as cash. Correct. So I guess that's the other thing too that you you could be still looking at negative equity, or, or not negative. Sorry, negative gearing um, for a period of time for those sort of investors. Yeah. So obviously you've got to look at 105 percent of the loan in those situations. So if they've got a five, like the average interest rate as of today, I'm paying is four point seven at the moment. So. If I was doing a 100% loan, I'd probably want a 6 7% return to factor in a mm. couple of interest rate rises. Yeah. And, uh, there might be a rental increase within six months if you own yeah. a property. So, you know, the equation's got to work day one as well. Yeah, I mean, some of the so. clients we've had at Senate over the years have done, like, astronomically well on commercial, you know, like bought factories in, I don't know, Williamstown in Melbourne for 50 grand each and now they're worth, like, $5 million, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it still comes down to land quality, right? Like it's still, you know, which is what we, we see in the resi space, you know, get the quality of the land, that's where people really compete on, that's where the income and the wealth sort of gravitates towards for that lifestyle benefit. I think people, businesses do that, right? They, they For the business benefit of owning that land, that's what, you know, drives the prices. Interesting, it's sort yeah. of, while well, you're Dumbo, sort of, you know, final question, but where have you seen it go really wrong? Like a risk that, you know, because it can easily happen in resi, right? You buy a place and then all of a sudden you didn't realize you didn't do a DA check or someone lodged a DA a week after you moved in and you know or lots of things you know uh, drainage all sorts of problems so where have you seen it go really wrong in commercial where it's an unforeseen risk that you Mm. can't rule you know your due diligence can't put it it's not really a but you just got to sometimes go look that's a leap of faith um or is those leap of faith just too risky in commercial because it's (laughs) you know it can be catastrophic yeah like how does it work? Well, yeah, it's a good question. Like, we we make sure that sort of big mistake doesn't happen, and, and it's a very thorough due diligence process. The, the biggest mistake you could make is if you buy a property that won't be relet again. So mm. there's not many of those around when you come to think about it. There might be some properties that will have longer vacancies or whatnot, but that's where you're going to get punished, by that big vacancy. So that would be the bypass town or, you know, you're not going to buy like, – no one's silly enough to buy a property in a heavily flooded area because, of course, you're going to check the flood maps. Of course, you're going to make sure there's a building yeah, attached. Okay. You call the council. Unapproved mezzanines are a big one. So people 
the agent will overstate the floor space because um, there might be a thousand square oh, meters yeah. shed okay. and a two hundred square meter office that the tenant illegally built. Yeah. Then they might try to charge you, you know, two thousand a square meter on top of the sale price for that two hundred square meter office space. That would show up in a valuation though. This is the good thing. There are so many protection methods. Um, if you just buy cash without a valuer, without a buyer's agent helping, you probably have, won't even know you've made a mistake until you try to resell mm. it. So, so you're doing evaluation if, though, if just while there. You're doing evaluation as part of your due diligence. So before so, you buy it. So the bank will. Yeah, so we, we do the equivalent of evaluation, but we also look at the viability of the business. But we know the valuer's job is to check the rent's not overpaid, check the legalities of the property. And making sure the the yield matches the yield, so that's what we hmm. do anyway. But then you've got an independent valuer doing it, and you've got to pay for the valuation. Big difference with resi to commercial. Mm. You know, on a two million dollar property, you might be spending three grand on a valuation yeah. in that case. So that'll be a fifty page report full of all the nuts and bolts of the assets. So when you've got all these third parties plus a good commercial lawyer that makes sure the lease is ironclad. You know, there's a lot of sort of factors of safety there if you do it properly. But if you don't have the right team around you and, you know, and I guess I don't hear about those ones because we've got that yeah. team. We've got the good, good commercial yeah. lawyer. We, we know that the banks will use legitimate valuers and we know the yield and the square meter rates for the rents anyway. So, you know, you can see through the dud deals quickly, I think, through that. I method. mean, with um, Resiet's clients, especially at the moment, you know, Clients will send me three or four properties. You know, what do you think? Not to say we act as buyers agents, but just as a sounding board to make sure they're in the heading in the right direction. Um, and uh, and we, you know, most of the time they're working. We're trying to work with you know a local specialist buyers agent. But I mean, it's it's would be nine out of ten, right? If not way higher than that, you would say there's a deal breaker. Wouldn't you agree, Veronica? Like most properties have something wrong with them. What is it sort of in the commercial space where you're like? It's just always a deal breaker. Oh, actually, no, it's, you know, not on the right road. Oh, no, it's too, you know, what percentage of deals do you look at? Do you actively go and consider and try to negotiate on? So we crash uh, one out of 10 on average. So 10% of the deals we put under contract, we, we crash. Now, the reasons it's that high, like I think it's a high percentage because we put a lot of work and we get no return out of that. But <laughs> bad building reports... Um, the most common one is the agent has understated the outgoing. So we get to the true facts and there's actually, oh, sorry, I forgot land tax in the equation. You know, that's four grand per annum that you've got to factor in. And then you say, well, I need to get that yield back. We need uh, 60 grand off the price to get that back. And they'll go, oh, the owner said no. So we crash because we don't want to lower yielding asset. Um, same with building and pest items. Mm. We might call the tenant up and the tenant says, um, I'm actually moving out. This place is too small. Yeah. Or the gym guy says, oh, there's no car spots for the yeah. tenants. Um, they're all complaining. You know, it's, there, there's so many reasons we crash. Um, unapproved mezzanines are a big one. Um, just we've been misled in the sale unintendedly most of the time. Like the agents yeah. kind of rush through. Or we buy direct from owners a lot of the time. And they, it's hard to piece through everything perfectly for information memorandum without missing something. That's where big agencies are good because they don't want to bring a property to the market unless they've triple checked yeah. everything and then there's uh, less chance things but I mean wrong, like if let's sure. say there's a hundred commercial properties on realcommercial.com.au right how yep. many good ones do you reckon are in there like is it five so, or ten percent of that market or is it two percent that you actually let, think's good like so the numbers we work off because I like we we have a team meeting every month and review like we probably review, I don't know, 350 properties per week across the country on and off market. 70% of it's off market too. So huge off market trade, more than resi. And the reason for that is a lot of times they don't want owners or tenants to know right. they're selling or they don't. Mm. These people are often prominent people in communities. They don't want everyone knowing why they're selling the shopping center, stuff like that. Um, but out of that 350, we secure about six to seven a week on average, maybe eight a week. So there's a very high cutoff percentage and and then out of that a couple or one one crash out of ten yeah. so there's there's a massive short listing that has to happen because yes you're right most of them i wouldn't touch and the reason i wouldn't touch is they're mostly they're just overpriced and people are greedy on and that's you know we're looking for the good deals not not the 
one that's 5% over market. I, so I guess there's a little bit different to say the way we look at it. It's similar percentages though, yeah. I think. Um, and, you know, I'd say it's probably about 2% worth buying in residential. Um, but we wouldn't, we would rule them out not because it was overpriced necessarily. I mean, we'd get to that point. But there's, there's, it's very clear in residential what's a good asset versus what's a medium, mediocre asset versus what's a really bad one. So we just avoid the bad ones and tend to steer away from mediocre as well. Whereas obviously the deal is what might mm. um, be a big factor in determining whether it's a good opportunity or not in commercial. Yeah. So therefore, you do have to consider a lot more than we would. You know, we can just write them write off properties <laughs> based on address half the time. Um, <laughs> whereas you'd have to dig a little deeper to, before you decide yeah. whether you're going to rule it out or not. I presume. Yeah, hundred percent. The only time we can really rule out a property without looking at it is if it's a tiny five thousand person town or not, because we know the banks won't want to come to the party mm. there. Um, but yeah, like it's it's really tenant dependent, square meter rate yeah. dependent, age of the building dependent. And also DA dependent. Like if you're if you're buying a property where they're building three new shopping centres in the corridor, then that's going to hurt. Yeah. So yep. it takes time to to get through. Scott, it. so much, so Very good to have you on. I mean, it's um, definitely something we're keen to cover more and more. And um, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a gap in our, our elephant in the room. Two hundred fifty episodes. So thanks so much for coming on. And um, yeah, hopefully there's lots of insights for our listeners. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Pleasure being here. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.